man, yeah. See, I just can't tell y'all how much I love this service. I love this service. <laughs> if you uh, got a Bible, go ahead and open with me. Exodus 7 is where we're going to be. Let me, while you're doing that, listen, feel free to keep your eyes open. If you're not unspiritual, keep your eyes open. Uh, turn there. I'm going to pray for us, okay? Dear God, as uh, the people uh, in the room are turning to Exodus 7, right now, dear God, I just come before you. Uh, Lord, with a, with a heart full of angst, dear God, for this moment, dear God, every week, um, I just believe that you want to speak to your people and that you want to do that through your word. And I pray that you would just uh, give me the words right now to say and stay out of your way and to do it in an appropriate manner, God. Uh, Holy Spirit, flood the room and uh, let us all be better for having known you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Exodus 7, Exodus 9 is where we're going to be. Uh, so just mark those two places. Well, as today, we're going to begin to look at the plagues. To look at the plagues. Now, the plagues, ten in total, are, are, at the, are the battle being played out between God and Pharaoh as he intends to deliver his people. If you've been coming over the past few weeks as we walk through the book of Exodus, uh, you've seen this story play out, right? God go, goes to Moses and says, Moses, I have heard the, the rumblings of my people. I've heard their groanings. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, we know that Moses does so. He goes to Pharaoh, says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And then at that point, uh, Pharaoh has a very distinct answer for Moses that we need to remember for later on in the service. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? In other words, I don't know who you, who you think you are, but I'm Pharaoh, I'm in charge, and I'm not letting the people go, right? And so at this point, uh, the God sends the plagues in order to, to lay out a battlefield in which God is going to show Pharaoh, essentially, who is the boss. Now, I want you to see this. This is, if, if we could really see the scripture before us and see what's happening, this is an all-out war between God and Pharaoh. This is an all-out war between God, who sits on the throne, and Pharaoh, who thinks he sits on the throne. This is an all-out war between God, who is God overall, and the Egyptian gods, who the Egyptian people thought were in control of, of the universe. So this is God uh, that, uh, laying out who's in control. Now, I want you to see this. As we consider the plagues, I want to encourage you to take a moment this morning and drop your vacation Bible school lenses, okay? Drop the lenses in which we would go through and understand this uh, as if we were reading some children's storybook Bible, okay? Because a lot of times what I think happens as we read this passage, as we read stories in the Old Testament like this, we read it and we read it as if we were reading uh, the, uh, a storybook Bible and it's really not that serious. Okay, I want to encourage you this morning to do something different. I, wanted you, I want to encourage you to take this story, uh, this series of happenings, from the perspective of those who saw these things happen. Can you imagine what the people in Egypt saw, what the people in Egypt thought, what the children of Israel thought as God sent these plagues on the land? None of them were like, hey, well, man... Nile of blood, that's awesome. That's kind of cool, right? They were like, oh my gosh, the world's coming undone. They, they were, there was no sense of, well, this is jovial, this is awesome. There was a sense of, oh no, we got to figure out what's going on. So I want to encourage you, hear this and hear it with the sense they would have. A, a sense of horror at what's happening. 
a sense of awe that I don't know who this God is, but he's doing some crazy stuff. A sense of astonishment that we've heard about the Egyptian gods all of our life, but we've never seen anything like this. I want to encourage you to hear it how they would have heard it. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a 40,000-foot view of the plagues, okay? Because I could do, uh, really we're looking at uh, Exodus 7:14 to Exodus 10, 29 this morning. I could do an individual sermon on each of the plagues, all right? The problem with that is that at that point, uh, this series becomes exponentially longer, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to take a 40,000-foot view of the plagues and we're going to look down to see how they all connect and to see what God was doing in the plagues, okay? So in order to do that, before we ask, what is God doing in the plagues? Let's have a recap of the plagues, all right? It, it may be, we're going to look at the first nine today. We'll look at the tenth next week by itself. But what is God trying to do in the plagues? Here's what I want you to see. The first plague is the plague of the Nile go, turning to blood, right? God comes to Moses, says, go to turn the Nile River into blood. Uh, he does so, doesn't only turn the Nile River into blood, he turns all the water that was in pots and other vessels into blood too, okay? Then from the Nile, God sends a plague of frogs. He says he, he sends frogs, so, so many frogs, that God has a sense of humor that the frogs are jumping out of the, the Egyptian women's kneading bowls, right? Like you can almost picture like an Egyptian mom opening her cabinet and frogs jump out, right? And then, then he sends gnats, all right? Now let me just go ahead and tell you, at this point is where Dallas was out of the whole plague deal, right? I lived below the gnat line in the United States. Does anybody know that that's a thing? There's a gnat line in the United States. The gnat line is right above Augusta, Georgia. So if you've never lived below Augusta, Georgia in your life, there are these things called gnats, all right? And now here's the problem with gnats. Gnats are of no real substance. They're flies that are so small that you can't kill them, okay? And I have vivid memories of playing t-ball as a child and open uh, palms slapping myself in the face in order to kill gnats, okay? So at, at the third plague, Dallas is out, okay? Then God sends a plague of flies. Now, don't just think a few flies. Uh, one of the idioms in the Egyptian language was that there were so many flies, they filled the household, and they were literally coming out of their nose. Now, have you ever had a fly, like, fly into your nose or your mouth? That's a different kind of torture, right? That's like Gitmo Bay stuff, right? Like, that's another level. And God's just sending flies. Then, after flies, God sends a plague that kills all the livestock. After the livestock, God sends a plague where he covers all of the Egyptian in boils and some kind of skin disease. And it says they were in pain and couldn't move. After that, he sends hail among the people. And the Bible says that the hail was so big that there had never been hail seen like that before. And there's never been hail seen like that since. And after the hail, there was locust. And after the locust, it ended all with a sense of dread and darkness as God took the, sky, the sun out of the sky. Now... Here's why we have to do a recap up front. I want you to see something. When you see the 40,000 foot view of this, we begin to understand this is really bad. Right? This is not cute Bible story like something you draw on the nursery wall, right? This is a culture that is disintegrating into chaos. So much so has the culture of the Egyptians disintegrated into chaos that when all is said and done, they don't have light to get up and move around in. God has destroyed their world. And now the question for us becomes, why would God do such a thing? 
Why would God act in such a way? Let's just be honest. Egyptian men, women, and children die during these. when, When all is said and done, the Egyptian economy is ruined. Why would God do such a thing? Here's what we're going to see today. God does this to show there is only one God who deserves the glory from us and who has the ability to take care of us. That's going to be on the screen. What we're going to see in the plagues is this. There is only one God who deserves the glory from us and who has the ability to take care of us. This is, the, this is why we have to do the plagues as a 40,000-foot view to sit, look down and to see everything because God, what God wants to show us is that there's only one God who, can, who deserves glory and there's only one God who can take care of us. Okay? With that in mind, look with me at Exodus chapter 9. We're going to start there in Scripture. We're going to pick up in the seventh plague, the plague of hell. In the seventh plague, the plague of hell, H-I-L, hell, falling from the sky, I hate that I have to identify that, but I'm from South Georgia. The plague of hail falling from the sky. Here's what we pick up on. The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 14 is incredibly important. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. If you you highlight things in your Bible, I want you to highlight that phrase, none like me in all the earth. Verse 15, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Now, do you get what God's doing here? I'm asking, why would God send the plagues? God's about to tell us why he sent the plagues, because what he's saying is, I didn't have to do things this way. God's saying, I don't know if you know this, Pharaoh. I'm kind of proving a point here. I'm so strong that, Pharaoh, all I had to do was reach out my hand, and in reaching out my hand, I could have ended you. But I didn't. So he's saying, I could have done it this way, but I didn't do it this way. What's he say about why? Verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's what we're going to do. God says, I could have done it this way, but I chose not to. I chose to do it this way for this reason. What is the reason that God did it the way he did? What is the reason why God sent the plagues? I want to point out three things from the plagues that show us why God did the plagues the way he did. The first reason, God sent the plagues to accomplish his purpose. To accomplish his purpose. Look with me again at verse 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, God here explicitly says why he does, the way that th- does things the way he does them. God's purpose is to show his glory and to receive our praise. God's purpose is to show his glory and receive our praise. I will, if you're a note taker, I, I would have you write that down, okay? God's purpose is to show his glory and receive our praise. Now, here's why this is so important. This is not just the reason that God is sending the plagues. This is the reason that God does anything that he does. This is the reason God created the earth. This is the reason God created you and me. This is the reason uh, good things happen in our life. This is the reason bad things happen in our life. This is the reason God sent the plagues. 
God's purpose is to show His glory and to receive our praise. Let me put it a little more simply, maybe. When God acts, that is when God does something in the world, He does something for this purpose, to show His glory to all people and to garner the praise of His people. So that whatever good happens in your life, whatever bad happens in your life, whatever God does in the world, He does it for this purpose. So that He can show all people, look how awesome I am, and so that His own people will say, He is that awesome. Now, I want to acknowledge something with you for just a minute. This is the theological deep end, okay? There are other verses in the Bible, there are other things we could preach today that would be much easier for us to comprehend and understand than God doing things in such a way so that He can get glory for doing them. But I want to swim here for just a moment because as we understand what God is doing and why God works the way He does, I want you to see this. This will change your life. That if you can look at your life, and everything that happens in your life, and if you can look at the world and everything that happens in the world and understand that in all things, God is doing something so that He can get glory from it and that His people will praise Him for it. It will change the way you look at the world. It will shift the way you see things. I want you to understand this. It is a good thing that God works for His glory. You might need to, you might need to write that down. It is a good thing that God works for His glory. But you might need to write it down because maybe you've never thought about it before. And, and honestly, we need to talk about it for a moment because the idea that God's purpose is His own glory sounds weird to us, right? And I think it sounds weird to us for a couple of reasons. The first reason I think it sounds weird to us is that we grow, we, most of us grew up in this church culture that told us God's purpose in everything was that He just loved us so much He had to have us, He couldn't stand being without us, and that everything's about us. And what I'm telling you is what Scripture tells you is that it's not about you. God says, hey, I do things so that I can get glory from them. And we don't really like that a whole lot because if it ain't about us, it ain't about us. But I think it sounds weird to us, too, because the Bible tells us not to work for our own glory. You ever thought about that? The Bible says that pride comes before the fall, right? One of my favorite Bible verses says, Let another's lips praise you and not your own lips. In other words, don't be the guy that goes around telling everyone how awesome you are. Yet what we find God doing to Pharaoh is saying, Pharaoh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm awesome. And matter of fact, Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose, to show you that I'm awesome. It's good for God to do this. I want to prove this to you, okay? It's good for God to do this. It's good for God to work for His own glory for two reasons. Reason number one, it's good for God to work for His own glory, is that it would be wrong for God to work for the glory of anyone else. Let me ask you this. If it seems odd to you that God works for His own glory, Whose glory would you rather God work for? Right? Yours? God, I know you're trying to tell me how awesome you are, but God, I'll be honest with you, I'd like a little more share of that pie. Right? So that God, I know you're great and all-sufficient and all-satisfying, but if you could just show that people how great Dallas is, that'd be cool. The reason why some of you laugh at that is because it seems such an incomprehensible comparison. 
that we know that God should not work to make much of me. Why? Because honestly, none of us are worth being made much of. So God works for his own glory because he's the only being in the universe for whom it is right to say, look at me, I'm awesome. Because he is. But that's the first reason. The second reason why this is such a big deal that it's so important that God offers, that God works for his good glory is this. It's good for us that God offers himself as the most glorious thing in the universe. It's really good for us that God says, Dallas, I am better than anything else. It's good for us that, da- that he looks to me and says, Dallas, I am more satisfying, I am more worthy, I am, I am of more beauty, I am of more value than anything else in the world. Do you know what would be really evil of God? If God looked at me and said, Dallas, just put your hope in anything else. Put your hope in everything else. Look at all the good stuff out there, Dallas. This is how toddlers get into trouble because they end up playing with trinkets, right? But God doesn't. God looks to us and says, you want to know what's good? You want to know what's best? You want to know what will satisfy your soul more than anything else in the world? Me. It's good for us that God offers himself as the most glorious thing in the universe because he is. So God is saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I'm doing things for this purpose so that I can show the whole world how awesome I am through this. And now I want you to understand this, that if that is so, and that God uses all people for his glory, then every one of us will glorify God. Now we will glorify God one way or another. We can glorify God like Pharaoh glorified God, Or we can glorify God like the children of Israel glorify God. You ask, what's the difference? There are two ways that people will glorify God. People will glorify God as examples of his power and wrath. Or people will glorify God as examples of his grace. Notice what he says to Pharaoh. He says, for this reason, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, so that I may show my power. He's saying, you think you're my enemy? Pharaoh, you're a pawn in my hand that I'm going to use you to show everybody else just how awesome I am. So we can, God will glorify us by his, pow, by his power, or God will glorify himself by his power, or God will glorify himself by his grace. Do you know what the Israelites in this moment have done to receive the grace of God? Nothing. As a matter of fact, Moses on the way out, he says to him, guys, we're about to go into the promised land. I just want you to know, it's not because you were bigger than any other people of the lands or better than any other people of the lands that God chose you. He says, as a matter of fact, you're none of those things. So get this, God will glorify himself by using us as examples of his power or using us as examples of his grace. This is what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 9. Here's what scripture says. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory... Uh, glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand so what's paul saying that everybody who has ever lived will ultimately glorify god they will glorify god by saying look how awesome his power is i tried to set myself against him and he crushed me or they will glorify god by saying look at his grace i deserve none of this and he gave me grace anyway now 
let's be honest for a moment as we take this in. I told you, this is, I understand that this is, this is hard stuff to comprehend sometimes, all right? But some of us may bristle at the idea that God would glorify himself by showing his power against his enemies, right? I, I think you could, especially if you've been reading along with us, you might notice phrases like God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if we read this, we can kind of begin to think, well, God, I'll just be honest with you. This doesn't seem very fair to Pharaoh. God, it seems like you're using him as an example, right? This is not fair to him at all. And I, want, I would remind you of a couple things at that point. Listen, first of all, if we got what was fair, every one of us would find ourselves in hell tonight. Second of all, I want you to remember that in making an example out of Pharaoh and making an example out of Egypt, God was drawing the Egyptian people to himself. You see, the Egyptian people had set themselves against God. They had built a culture that was dependent upon themselves, and they said they didn't need, to need God. They said they had Pharaoh. They said they had their Egyptian gods. But as God destroys all of their society, as God destroys all of the things that they put stock in, here's what they're left realizing. There is one God, and it's not who we thought it was. Such that, listen, it may be the grace of God in your life where he destroys some things that you were counting on. We are not God. And though it may seem fair, God's doing more to us than we can possibly imagine. So here comes the question then. How can those of us in this room be sure that we are examples of his grace and not examples of his power? Because I don't know about you, but if I get to choose between who I want to be like in this example, if I want to be like Pharaoh or the children of Israel, that's not a real hard choice, right? I'm going children of Israel. So how can we be sure that we are examples of his grace? Here's what I want to tell you. We are to respond to God's call on our lives in the exact opposite way that Pharaoh did. You see, Pharaoh, from the very beginning, operated in two ways with God. Disobedience and negotiation. He, the, Moses comes and says, deliver my people. What does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? He's just directly disobedient. And then as the story unfolds, what happens? He, a plague comes, and, Moses, and the Egyptian people are under, in distress, and Pharaoh calls Moses and says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to let all of you go, but I'll let the women and children go. And then he, he, he goes back on that, and he says, okay, I'm not going to let all of you go, but I, you can go out and you can take the, the men and the, and the women, but you've got to stay within three days' journey. This whole time, God's come with him with a command, let my people go. And he's either been disobedient or negotiating. And here's what I want you to understand. If we are going to be examples of grace, there is no negotiation with God. Where Pharaoh hardened his heart, we must humble ours. Where Pharaoh refused to repent, we must run from sin. Where Pharaoh failed to seek forgiveness, we must ask a gracious God to forgive us of our failures. How do we know we're examples of grace? We do the exact opposite of what Pharaoh did. So God is acting in this way to accomplish his purpose. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing that we see from the scripture is that God's acting in this way to prove his supremacy. To prove his supremacy. I love Exodus 9.14. This is where the story, uh, when I was reading this week, actually just started to come alive to me. In Exodus 9.14, he says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants, so that you may know there is none like me. Why am I doing this? Because y'all think there are a lot of gods like me. 
He's saying to the Egyptian culture, you think you've got all these gods and they're controlling stuff and they're making the waters rise and the waters fall and they're causing people to get pregnant and have babies and they're causing the earth to produce crops. He says, I want you to understand something, Egyptians. I want you to understand, Pharaoh, there is none like me. In these plagues, God wants to show who has the right to sit on the throne. And if God was going to establish his supremacy, then he had to assert himself over all the other gods and all the other rulers in the land of Egypt. So this is what he does. And the plagues are meant to show us that he is God over all gods. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of how the plagues show this. God, in the plagues, attacks another Egyptian god every time he sends a plague. So I said, let me give you an example. The Nile River was thought to be ruled by an Egyptian god named Hopi, okay? And now Hopi was in control of protecting the river and making the waters rise in flood season and providing the people of Israel with this gracious root of provision that they had been hoping in for so long. Now God comes and says, tell you guys what, y'all have been hoping in Hopi to take care of you. I want to show you what Hopi's not able to control, the river. So he takes the Nile River and turns it into blood. He says, Hopi's not in control of anything. The frogs is the same deal. There was a goddess named Hecwit in Egyptian culture, and Hecwit was the goddess of fertility. And Hecwit was so revered that she had a, a human body and a frog head, and that because she was so revered and the women prayed to her for fertility, that they would not let people kill frogs. So God says, I tell you what, you got so much honor and reverence for frogs, have some frogs. And I mean, is this not just like, let me show you, right? We get to the gnats, and it says they rose up from the dust, and, and there was this Egyptian god named Geb, and Geb was what controlled what came out of the earth, and it, it produced good things, good crops. And God says, you've been relying on Geb to give you good crops. Let me show you what I can make come out of the earth, something that will make you want to go back into the earth. These plagues show there's no god like our god. These plagues show that there's no power, there's no power like God's power. I, 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 you, really, you should go back home and read this if you haven't. Exodus 7, 14 to 10, 29. What you'll see is that as the first few plagues unfold, the Egyptian magicians, all right, say that five times fast, the Egyptian magicians could do all the things that Moses could do. And so Moses turned the water into, uh, the water into blood, and the Egyptian magicians came out and turned the water into blood. Moses said, here, have some frogs. The magicians said, here, have some frogs. But as they get to the gnats, they can't make the dirt become gnats. And God's out to say something, show something here. You think the powers of evil are anywhere comparable to mine? As a matter of fact, I'll humiliate the powers of evil. Because when you get to the sixth plague, the plague of the boils, the Bible says this, that the magicians were covered with boils from head to toe such that they could not stand before Moses. Now, if Moses was in a fight with the magicians, I just want you to see this. I don't know what your level of street credibility is. Maybe you've never gotten in a fight. But if there are two people in a fight and one's on the ground and one's standing up, the person on the ground lost. All right, And Moses is talking to the magicians, and they're lying down. In other words, there's no power like our God's power. And there's no king like our king. You know the strong, who the strongest king is? The strongest king is the one who never has to ask a favor. 
And as this plays out, you've got God the king and Pharaoh the king, and God starts just running ramshack across the people. And it, some, somebody needs to go check on them kids. <laughs> Did y'all hear that? As the, as the plays start playing out, God's just running ramshack across the culture. And Pharaoh says, Moses, will you ask your God to give us some relief? You see, he was a king, but he wasn't a strong king. Because God asked no favors. Pharaoh was. This is, God's out to prove a point here. If there is a throne in the universe, there's one person who has the right to sit on it. And it's not us, it's not the Egyptian gods, it's not Pharaoh, it's him. He's in control of everything. And the final thing that I want you to see this morning is that he does the plagues the way he does them to show his provision. To show his provision. Now, we could have got this from chapter 9, but I want to flip back to chapter 7 real quick and just read how the plagues start out. The plagues start out at Exodus 7 like this. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret art. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Verse 23, And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Now, I want you to see the desperation that last verse introduces us to. It says that the Egyptians were so desperate for water and they couldn't get any from the Nile, they started digging up beside the Nile. And it, gives, it brings to mind the Egyptian mom who needed to give her children water. All of a sudden, digging on the side of the bank, to just please let me find some water. It brings to mind the Egyptian fa- father, who, the Egyptian farmer, who had to water his livestock in order to, to, make a, to make a harvest that year, in order to, to make the cattle grow. And as he goes to feed the livestock, he goes to the Nile and there's blood. And all of a sudden, he's hopeless, and he starts digging along the bank, saying, please, let me find water, let me find water. And here's what I want you to see that these plagues are doing. In this moment, all that the Egyptians counted on is being upended. Their financial system is ruined. Their future plans are laid to waste. And in the plagues that follow, everything that bought them security and hope and happiness was shown to be futile and openly mocked by God. Now, the reason why I want to bring this up is that this is an important lesson to us. When you look to anything else other than God, For your provision, your hope, and your satisfaction, it will ultimately fail you. And this is why it's such a big deal. We think we're not like the Egyptians. I want you to understand something. We are just like the Egyptians. We laugh at the Egyptians' obsession with the Nile River and the thought that this is this. This is some God that gave them provision and took care of all their needs. We laugh at their obsession with the Nile, but we're obsessed with the stock market. 
And when that stock market turned south, we looked just like the Egyptians on the side of the bank, just saying, please go back up, please go back up. The money that I had invested, where is it gone? We think it's funny that they hoped in a frog for fertility. But we pray to the God of modern science to deliver us from all infertility. We think it's crazy that the Egyptians sought a Pharaoh who could meet their needs while we go to the voting booth every four years and pray for a president that's going to solve all of our problems. We're just like the Egyptians. And here's what I want you to see. When good things, when bad things come to your life that cause you to, sp to despair, and cause you to realize that the place where you were putting your hope cannot deliver you. We should not be saddened by that. We should rejoice in that. The plagues were a gift from God to the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. That those things that you think matter, they don't. And here's what I know this. Know this, that God's still doing the same thing today. Did COVID not do to us what Moses did to the Nile? Overnight, we couldn't find toilet paper within a 30-mile radius. And in one moment, listen, I walked into the office, and I, don't you love hearing stuff like this? They said to me, we've got payroll guaranteed through the end of the month. After that, we don't know. And in one moment, listen, all the stuff that we thought we could count on to deliver us, here's what God said, that stuff will never hold you. The plagues are an open appeal from God. Do not look anywhere in this world for provision or hope or satisfaction. In the plagues, God is showing us that there is only one God who deserves our glory, and there's only one God who can take care of us. And ultimately, listen to me, that God has been provided to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate purpose, supremacy, and provision. He, he, God aims to make himself known. Scripture tells us in John chapter 1 that Jesus has made God the Father known as the only Son from the Father. God's purpose is to show himself supreme. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 19 that when Jesus comes back, he will come back with a tattoo on his chest and a tattoo on his thigh that rings, reads King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is greater than all. And God, and God uses the plagues to show that he will meet all of our needs. Jesus Christ has come to us to say, I will meet all of your needs here and now in the present, that the righteous will not go hungry, and they shall not, that they shall not beg for bread, but I will also meet your needs for all of eternity and give you eternal life. Why does God act the way he does? He acts the way he does to show us that we need Jesus. The only question is, how will we respond? Will you, like Pharaoh, harden your heart? Or will you, like the children of Israel, follow God into the deliverance that He offers us in Jesus Christ? If you've never turned to Him for the life that He offers, the life that's abundant and free, would you do it today? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth, they'll grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Pray with me. God, this has been nothing but the foolish ramblings of a man. I pray that just by Your grace You would honor Him. God, if there's somebody in this room today who has never turned to you for deliverance and life and abundance, dear God, and they've been hoping in other things today, dear God, would you let the day be the day where all of that runs out and they turn to you, Jesus? And if there's anybody in, that, in this room right now 
who that describes, dear God, I pray that they would find me and that they would call out to you and ask for your deliverance. God, thank you for doing things the way you do to show me that what we need more than anything else in the world is you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.